welcome to another Real Life Theology Podcast. This is Jason. We're going to continue the breakout sessions from the Renew.org National Gathering 2021. Next up is Robert and Carrie Cox from the Crossings Church in the St. Louis area of Missouri. These guys are excelling at reaching college students. Through their student ministries, they not only win so many to Jesus, many of whom are first-generation Christians, but they make them disciple-makers and many times church planters. Let's listen in as Robert and Carrie share some of the strategies they have in reaching college students today. But Carrie and I both work together at the, uh, at the Crossing Church in St. Charles County. And uh, the Crossing Church is a church plant that's about 17 years old now. It's hard to believe it's that. Uh, uh, Chris uh, came when we were really just a baby church. And that church was planted by another church that, that, uh, that I helped start uh, over in Alton, Illinois. But if you were to show up at the Crossing Church uh, on any given Sunday morning, uh, probably the first thing you would notice, and, and this was true also at, in Alton when I was there, the first, the first thing you would notice, at least to any churches that I'd ever been a part of, was the age of the church. Uh, I've had a, a, a guest one time walk up to me and, and afterwards as we were engaging and talking, he said, yeah, when I came in, I thought I might need to find you and ask where the adult church was. Uh, and we're not a huge church. We run about 500 right now. You know, after COVID, we're still not where we were. But uh, we run about 500, but if you would come in on a given Sunday morning, you'd see about 100 college students that are there, 75 to 100 college students, around 70 to uh, 50 to 75 high school students, and around probably 50 to 75 junior high students that are there. And then I'm the old guy at the church. I'm literally, I'm Batman who needs to retire yeah, in, in that setting, maybe. But I'm, I'm the old guy. My wife, you know, she, she is a, the, one of the seniors of our church. And it's really always been that way. And I, I've often wondered why. And I mentioned someplace that initially I thought, you know, whenever I first started, I was young and I could relate. And so they come and I thought, well, now I'm 40 and I'm still cool and they can relate. <laughs> Now I'm 62, and I just know I've always been immature. And so, <laughs> and so that's kind of the pattern of what's going on. But that's kind of what our church has always looked like over a period of the last 40 years. About 60% of our church on Sunday morning, if you include kids and everything, over 75% of our church will be under 30. And it's been at Greater Alton, it's where we are now. And Kerry can tell you a little bit more about the specifics of how that plays out with campus ministry. And one of the cool things I think about the church in general is the fact that uh, it, with all those numbers he's talking about, we have had more high school students and college students lead their parents to Christ than the opposite take place. Um, of those kids, those, those are not like church kids, uh, you know, that have been raised in the church. Generally speaking, they, those are kids who have been one from the world and who are now reaching their family and their friends. And it's been just a really cool thing to see take place. Uh, so when the church started in 2004, I had been doing campus ministry for eight years at that point. When I was 18 years old, I graduated early from high school, uh, worked as an intern for six months in the college ministry, and then jumped into full-time ministry when I was 18 doing college ministry. So I've been at it for quite a while now. And uh, I've seen just some really cool things take place. We, we get that ministry group from a handful of students to about 75 students. And then we went on the church plant in 04. And we had a handful of students uh, on that church plant. Uh, very few. We had about five college students who started with us at the crossings in 2004. Two high school. Uh, and two high school students. And so everything that's kind of taken place over the past several years, 
all was birthed from this like very small group of students. Uh, since then, the Crossings has planted a church in 2014 in uh, the Interbelt area of St. Louis. In 2017, we planted a church across the river in Illinois. And then last year, about a year and a half ago now, we planted a church in Columbia, Missouri. And I tell you all that to, to get to a more important point. Uh, not long ago, I was talking to the guys from Renew, and they were like, hey, can you write an article on why college ministry and why student ministry in general is so important and how that has impacted the Crossings Church? Because I think that sometimes student ministry gets overlooked by how powerful it can be. So we wrote an article, and in doing the research for that article about what's taking place at our church, uh, we started realizing something really cool about our church plants. And I'm, I want to read a little section of that article from Renew for me. It says, there were 102 people on these lists of church plants who were sent out. Of these, 87 of the 102 people became disciples of Jesus in student ministries. 85%. Another five of those were reached directly by college students. That means at our church plants, when you look at the plants that have went out since 2014... 90% of the people who went out on those church plants were either one in student ministry or as a direct result of those ministries. And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, they're a very upward mobile group of people. But I just think that so, sometimes college ministry gets overlooked for several reasons. One, people don't realize the importance of it. They don't realize what it enables you to do and be as a church. And then I think it also gets overlooked because it is very difficult. And I think a lot of churches for a long time have looked and they're aging and they're graying and they're kind of dying out. And they look at student ministry as something that's almost impossible to do. And, and you know, they look at it like, how, do we, how can we reach this group of people? I don't really think we can anymore because culture is so screwed up and society, this and that. And that's just not the case. And so I, as we kind of go into reaching uh, students today, I want you to understand this can have a massive impact on your church that could change the future of not only your church, but you could have people who are coming to a new relationship with God who are going out on church plants and making a difference all over our country. And that's what we hope to continue to do uh, with, our, with our churches and with our college ministries. So uh, students, what we're going to talk about today is students' essential needs and what it's going to take to meet them. What is it going to take for our churches to become churches that are actually reaching younger people, that are actually reaching college students? And the first essential need that I think that students have, and, and as I polled our college ministry students, I said, hey guys, what would be the number one thing that you could point to that you're like, man, this is one of the things that drew me to Christ. This is one of the things that drew me to the church. And over and over and over again at the top of that list was meaningful relationships. Over and over. And, you know, I, I think when we look at our churches too often, the sad thing is, is that if we want to know why we're not reaching college students, why we're not reaching younger people, is because we can look at our churches and genu generally speaking, there are a lot of meaningful relationships that are taking place. We have a lot of acquaintances. We have a lot of people who we would say we love, but we run into them basically once a week. Or if we have a, a midweek service, maybe a small group. But there's no, there's no meaningful connection too many times in those relationships. And college kids have grown up in a world where relationship is very, very shallow. Most of my students would look and they look at their familial relationships, they look at their relationship with their dads, with their moms, with their siblings, with their friends, and they would say those are very shallow relationships at best. A lot of them didn't even have relationships with their fathers. 
Well, you know, they didn't have relationships with their family members. And then when it came to the connections they made outside of their family, they were also very shallow connections. There was no intimacy. There was no accountability. There was no sharing in common. There was none of those things that you would look and say, man, this is what a, a, a meaningful relationship looks like. And when you look at the church in the first century, I think the reason they grew, one of the massive reasons is because they had such a loving connection with each other. In John 13, 34 and 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, I think it's very easy for us to say that we love and care about the people in our church. But the depth of that love and the depth of that relationship sometimes uh, falls short of what it should and I think when college students show up at our churches, if they're not able to look around and see something that is so drastically different, if they're not able to see a love that says those people are different, those people are disciples of Jesus because of the way that we love each other, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we care for one another, the way that we're not afraid to hold each other to a high standard. All of these things, all of those things are a part of love. And Jesus says, listen, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples. And when college students come into an environment where they see that, they're like, I have never seen this. Over and over again, my college students would say, man, when I showed up to the campus ministry, when I showed up to the church, what went through my mind is I have never seen people care for each other the way that you guys do. I have never felt like someone cared more about who I was and about my eternity than you guys did. 1 Corinthians 4, 15-17. For though you may have 10,000 teachers, guardians, or tutors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For because through the good news or the gospel, I became your father in Christ Jesus. So I beg, urge, encourage, and exhort you, please follow my example. Be imitators of me. He's saying, man, listen, you know, you need that, that close, tight-knit relationship. You need relationships where you can look at people and be like, man, that guy was a father to me. I think about my, you know, my buddy TC, who uh, he was just in here a little bit ago. He's dressed up like Ted Lasso, so if you've seen him, he's a little odd. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I think about TC, and when TC came to the church, TC had a horrific family life. Horrible. His dad's an alcoholic, beat the snot out of his mom all the time. Just awful. And I was just a few years older than TC. But when TC interacted with me, I, I just had this heart for TC. He's a, when you get to know TC, you can't, you can't not love him. You just love him. And I felt so bad for where he had been. And I'm a few years older than this kid, and he's, and, I, and he's like, man, but you also fulfilled like this void of a father, of a relationship that I had never had. And now I have all these brothers and sisters that I had never had. I've never experienced family. I never thought I could have something good like this. But I found it in the church. And how students need the, that meaningful connection. And when Paul says you have 10,000, when he says tutors or guardians or word, depending what translation that you use, it was a really trusted role that you had. If you were a wealthy person, you would have a tutor, someone, and initially it meant just the one who would escort them to school and later evolved into the teacher. But the bottom line what it is, is that he's saying is you've got a lot of people that, were, that you know, are like, they're good people, they're, they're, but you're an assignment to them. And you're more than that to me. I'm your father. And I really do believe that one of the things that, that motivates our, our college students they long for, you, you, you're, if you're a campus minister, you need to be careful because those are your assigned people. And you better take it further because to this church that is struggling to be obedient 
when Paul is going to pull them to obedience in a difficult culture, he doesn't use the fact that I'm an authoritative figure. I've been assigned to you. Even though I'm a really good authority figure who cares for you that I've been assigned to you, he says, remember, I'm your father. That's the relationship we have. And that is the transformative relationship when things are difficult. In a difficult time like we live in our culture right now, you better have relationships that are more than just assignments and roles, or at least assignment-type roles, and just making sure it's familial, and you'll see that in the next yeah, passage. Yeah, in the next here. passage, I mean, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-9, that's exactly what you see. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead... We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We love you so much that we shared with you not only the good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. And you look at that, man, you look at that passage, he's like, listen, we didn't only share the gospel with you, but we shared our own lives with you. They are longing to share lives. That's what college students are looking for. When I met TC, he had been, this, the, I met him at the beginning of the school year, and I'm going to make this as quick as possible, but I met TC because I was studying the Bible with a high school kid, and I said, what are you going to have to cut out of your life if you're going to follow Christ effectively? And he said, TC. He had hung, tried to hang himself because of a decision TC had pushed him to make. This kid was a mess, and so was TC. So I said, before you do that, let's not give up on TC, but let's invest in TC. He's like laughing at me. He'll never come to church. TC comes to church, starts experiencing relationships, says, I've never seen this. And I, and I, and I looked at TC, and I was like, man, if TC's going to make it, we have to share our lives. For the next three months, that bum of a college student who was drinking every day on the way to class, drinking at wrestling practice, which he was going to college in, for a wrestling scholarship, drinking at practice, that bum slept on my couch for like three to four months. And everything we did, if I went to Target, he went with me. If we had family dinner, he did it with us. We did family devotionals, TC sitting there. And over that time, that meaningful relationship and that sharing of life that took place was something that drew TC in and then it drew his sister in. And now TC is a minister on church plants doing that same thing for other people because he found meaningful relationships in the kingdom of God. I think in that verse also that Paul talks about it in that trying is that, that as he pulls his church, which I think Thessalonica may have been his favorite church, you know what I mean? It's the one you just read, it's full of good stuff. But if you go through that chapter, you'll find out the, the most repeated phrase is, surely you know, which points to relationship in the sense that it, 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 when, when, when the Bible talks about you know somebody knowing somebody and Adam knew Eve, it's talking about intimacy, but it's not always purely sexual. And so he goes, you know this, but then the three ways he says, you know what you know is that we love you like a father, we love you like a mother, we love you like a brother. Everything's familial. Everything's, he goes, the best dad, that's what we were. The best mom, that's what we were. And I'm telling you, that's what our college student, Joe Carey, is with Batman and Robin, I guess, you know, whenever I was Carey, he, he started full-time after he graduated. He graduated early from high school, and he worked full-time. I said, what are you making at Golden Corral? And I said, whatever you make, we'll add $5 to that. And so he started off and literally worked for nothing. We were a new church, didn't have anything. But they had a brother in Carey very quickly that came in. But then when you come in to our family, they had a father figure in me. Now that's beginning to transition. Four or five years ago, whenever everything went down in Ferguson, you know, and all the racial stuff, 25 miles from there on Thursday nights, there would be 15 or 20 kids from Ferguson and Florissant were at my daughter's house. And it was just incredible. It was there, but one Sunday, one, one Thursday night, the cops rolled up. And we find out later, somebody said they were, they were afraid there was gang activity. 
still areas, you know. But one of the things that when Ashley was retelling the story, one of the kids came around from Ferguson, obviously a, a, a black kid, at least if you look uh, typically Ferguson. When he comes around to tell Ashley, his youth leader, that the cops are there, or future youth leader, he comes around and says, hey, Mom. Mom, the cops are there. And that's how they referred to it. And it's why it explains now, five or ten years later, those kids are either in his campus ministry or they're leading in our ministries or they're out in church plants. Literally, out of that group of 15, four or five of them are now in leadership roles in our church. That family thing's essential. Uh, you know, Romans 12, 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. College students are very good at sniffing out what's fake. You know, they look, they look at so many of the relationships that they see in our churches, and they don't see sincerity. They don't see something that is going to, that's going to hold up, that's going to last, that they know is real. And I think that we're really, if we want to reach the next generation, if we don't want our churches to die out, we've got to be much more sincere about our relationships with one another to where when they come in, they see what Jesus was talking about. And there's no denying that it's different. But in order to do... In order for them to see that, we have to give them models and we have to give them space. That's what it takes to meet that need. We have to give them models and space. And we're going to find, when we talk about meaningful relationships, every one of the four points, we're going to say, here's what they need, and here's, we'll give you two words to describe what you have to do. And models and space, models just means they need somebody who they go, okay, this is what real love is. And then they need the space to develop those relationships. They need to have places where they can spend the night on the couch if they want to. To where they, to where, and, and literally, my wife and I, we've married, been married about 15 years. We counted up, and we had, I think, 39 people that had lived with us for at least three months or further. That it, they, they became our family, and so you, you have to have people that are really modeling that. And if you're a leader, or you know, if you're a campus minister, or if you're a key leader, it's not enough to command that you love. You have to have a show and tell kind of teaching that goes on. And then the space is, man, these guys. Everything they do, they, there has to be room. You can love your spouse, but if you don't have space to interact with her, it doesn't matter how good the love is, she'll get crowded out. So the campus ministry retreats, the small groups that they have, they are constantly providing an activity where, yeah, there's something meaningful, but then there's just time to be together. In their cross chats, the evangelistic Bible studies, they'll study the Bible for 35 or 40 minutes, and then afterwards, those kids will be there literally until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning sometimes in the houses. And that's not, you go, well, what's that about? Space. You get to see love, and then you get to develop love. And it's got to, you need to program it, but it needs to be more than a program. So second thing, the essential need is we try to hurry along. The second need is authentic examples. We're okay, and we, we've talked about this in meaningful relationships, how you transfer that. But they need people that are walking the walk and are talking the talk, but it's just clear that these people are different. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 10, 11, Paul says, But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach, how I live, what my purpose of life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. So he's got to know Paul when things are good. He knows what they're bad. From, from the White House to the outhouse, you know, he's been with Paul in a little embarrassing way. I'm sure they didn't talk when they were in the outhouse. You know what I mean? He saw the good and the bad that was there. But no, what he saw, no matter what was going on, no matter what hell was breaking loose around him, he saw heaven and act in the, in, the light, in, the, in the spirit of Paul. And so as these college students, they've got all the culture that's raging and saying, this is ridiculous. And then they hear something that contradicts that, and that has impact. But then when you add the example to it, it becomes very powerful. It's what changes things. There is... 
I remember one time getting in a discussion with a guy about testimonies and telling stories about people. And he goes, it's like you have, you have, you know, it's the gospel's written, the, 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 the soul-saving gospel is, uh, or the life-changing gospel has been replaced by the, the gospel of the changed life. And you, you see that what he set up as a dichotomy is not at all that. The life-changing gospel is amplified by the gospel of the changed life. They're not in opposition to each other. But you can't, it, 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 the, the, the life change amplifies what's heard. Second, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 16, be careful, Paul's telling Timothy, this young church planter, be careful about the way you live, about what you teach, keep on doing it, you'll save not only yourself, but the people who hear you. Well, he doesn't say it, but people don't hear your consistency. They see your consistency. But he says this, this rigid consistency is going to allow you to transform people in spite of the fact that you're young and you're inexperienced. In Matthew chapter 23, woe to you teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you allow those to enter who are trying. Woe to you teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you succeed, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I said for... 30 years, at about age 10, our children start developing these their invisible antennas, and what they are, there's this radar, but they're hypocrisy detectors. Until your kids, seven, eight, nine, they think you're they think you're perfect, right? They think mommy and daddy are perfect, and then all of a sudden, 12, at their beginning of something's changing, 13, all of a sudden it starts going off. And often it's their detection of what before. They only heard what you saw that that that, that coincided with what, with what you we're living. Now they're seeing the hypocrisy of what's going on. And they're alarmed by that. And what Paul says to the Pharisees, he goes, man, I hate hypocrisy. And three reasons why we've got to get this down. He says, number one, hypocrisy keeps even the person who is professing a faith in God from being saved. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven. But not only is that, he says, it prevents those who are seeking. Authentic seekers. You don't allow those to, who, are, who are seeking, who want to enter to. And then the third reason is it's contagious. You travel over land over sea, but the problem is when your college student is baptized, before very long, they lose that enthusiasm just like we said they would, and they become twice as much a son of hell as you are. What's the cure to that? Well, the cure to that is authentic examples. I think with that, so I grew up going to church camps. So when I was in high school, I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid, right? You know what that means in most, in most cases, right? Preacher's kids tend to be hellions. They don't listen to God. They a lot of times rebel. And, and peace out. Well, when I went to church camp, I sat in these bunks next to these kids, which most of the kids I went to church camp with are no longer faithful to God. The majority, by far, no longer attend church. A lot of them don't believe in God. Even if they do attend church, it's very nominally. And I look at that, and when we'd have these conversations in the cabins, the difference that I saw in them and me, and this isn't to pump him up because he's got his own issues, but when I looked at my dad, when I looked at my dad and my mom, I never felt like they were asking me to do something they weren't wholeheartedly doing themselves. When I looked at my parents, I saw them investing in the kingdom, investing in people's lives, having great relationships. I saw an authentic example. And so I was like, okay, if that, and I, then I looked at my friends' lives and saw what, what, what that was like, life without God. And I was like, okay, which one do I want? And I picked a life of God. Most of my friends who grew up in the church looked at their family and their ministers at their church and the members of their churches. And they said, they're full of it. I don't want anything to do with that. And because they didn't have authentic examples, they chose the world. 
And that's a scary thing because this can be very difficult for us to reach college students when we're not even keeping our own. Right. And, and, and I'm telling you, yeah. time and time again, those college students who walk away from God will tell you most of, their, most of the reason is they had never seen an authentic example of what a disciple of Jesus really looked like. So they need an authentic example. So what's it take to meet the need? It takes accountability and instruction. Accountability for those who are, who are in any form of leadership within your church. Because they may be going to Bible study. They may be going to BS, but they'll see the BS if it's at the Bible study, okay? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there has to be some kind of accountability where there's an ongoing relationship with the people. That, because what happens in church, we just kind of settle in. And, and it's weird. I did a series on redwood trees, and I did, it was called uh, If Animals Could Talk. And when I did the redwood trees, I knew that people are going to go, you know, a redwood tree isn't really an animal. Yes, I know that, okay? But, but they're living things, and I like them, all right? <laughs> but one of the cool things about redwood trees is that they never stop growing. They don't die because they're old. They die because they fall down. And as a matter of fact, the older they get, their amount of the, the great growth increases. Obviously, for preachers that are in here, you're going, man, that's a great idea. That, that'll preach, right? That it's there. But, you, but that's what we want to make sure that we're doing. Leadership of people implies movement. Not a stationary position, but a moving position. If you're not moving at some point, you stop leading. So we've got to make sure there's accountability where our people are growing. And so it has to be programmed into what you're doing. It has to be part of your DNA. That their leadership is not a position that you inherit, that you just sort of show up at your small group. Leadership is the example that you're setting. So there needs to be that accountability. there, And then there needs to be instruction. For both the Christian that is the leader or for the babies, one of the things that as soon as somebody becomes a Christian, and again, in the years that, you know, whenever the last year, several years I was at Alton at church, we baptized over 100 people a year for three years. During those three years, my, my daughter was in eighth or ninth, ninth grade, I think, and she said, Dad, how many people do you baptize this year or study with and baptize? I said, I think two. And she said, I studied and baptized with four. I baptized more people than the preacher did. <laughs> and she was just giving me a hard time. But in the paradigm that we have, if we're all disciples, and it doesn't fall upon the preacher to do anything other than what everybody else is supposed to do. But there needs to be a, a means of instruction, both for the leadership that goes up that you have that are growing, but also there has to be accountability instruction for the new believer. You can't just baptize them, get them wet, and then hang them out to dry, right? Which we do a lot of times. And so, you know, whoever's studying with somebody, you know, they'll be in studies, you know, for several weeks before they're, they're Christians usually, looking at what it means to be a disciple, really making sure that they're understanding what's going on. But one of the things that we're trying to do at, at the crossings is make sure that for the next year after they become a Christian, in the same, the same intensity that they were studied with before they were born, that we're caring for them with that same intensity of studying with them after they're born. We have a new thing called... Uh, it's the, the Baby Believers uh, Guidebook or something, and it's, it's subtitled in, in ours, A Postnatal Guide for New Disciples and Those Who Care For And that language was very intentional because we do a lot better prenatal, with our, with a, at least in our setting, you know, where anybody's baptized is going to be studied with, they're going to be taught with personally. But it's so easy to think that baptism is the birth, to, what, baptism is the birth, but that's the highlight. That's the beginning point of life. In Christ. So making sure that they have both, you got to have accountability for your leaders and instruction for your new believers. So, and, and I'll tell you before I go to the next point, that is especially true. The most accountable groups in our church are our leadership groups. 
starting with our, our core leadership of our entire church. Man, you want to talk about some intense meetings? We hold each other to a very high standard. To be quite honest, all the way down here yesterday, I was stressing out because I was having it out with some of my leaders in my ministry about some stuff that I felt like needed to be dealt with. And so it, it does really start at the top even with that to where we hold each other to a very high standard. But uh, moving on to that next need, this, the third essential need that we see the college students need is a compelling cause. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where when it, it, if you look at young people today, they want to be a part of something. And no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on, you see that taking place. You see craziness just it, on both sides sometimes because college students and younger people are longing to be a part of something that is going to make a difference. The problem is, is they're investing in lots of things that in the long run really aren't going to matter much because they're not eternal. And they're investing in all the wrong things. Uh, you know, in John 18, 37, it says, Jesus answered, you rightfully say that I am king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. We have the best cause started by Jesus that anyone could ever be a part of. You know, he was talking about earlier, we have students in our ministry from, from Ferguson, Missouri, who live literally blocks away from where Michael Brown was shot. Like, and that's where they've grown up, that's where they live, there were several of them. And when that happened, they could choose what cause was really going to matter in their lives. And I remember Aaron Mitchell calling me. And I remember talking to Darren. And we're talking about this stuff. And they're like, man, we're watching the news. And we are seeing friends of ours looting places and tearing things up. And we got to figure out, we need, we, let's sit down, Carrie. Let's talk about what we're going to do. And let me tell you something. Those kids looked at that and they said, you know what? The gospel is what's going to fix this issue. The cause that matters is eternal. The cause that matters is that they understand and have a relationship with God. And those dudes got in a car and drove to Ferguson to tell their friends, this isn't the answer, but Jesus is. Amen. Because they understood there was a cause that really could change things. And they had something that they were a part of that was so much more important than what their friends were going to think of them. And trust me, it didn't go for so well in a lot of ways. But they found something that was really important. They are looking for something to be a part of. And in too many times in our churches, they don't look at our churches and say, those people have a cause. Those people have a mission. Those people have a purpose. They look at our churches and they're like, those people show up on Sundays. And that's all. if that's all the church has to offer college students, we are never going to reach them. Because they are longing to be a part of something greater. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Most people don't realize this, and I didn't until a couple years ago. Whenever I think about him designating the apostles, I'm thinking old dudes with gray beards. That was not the case. Look at what most theologians are saying now, and you'll find out that they believe most of them were still in their teen years at the time when Jesus called them. He was giving them something to be a part of. He was saying, you guys are the ones who are going to go out. You're going to spread. You're going to spread the gospel. You're going to be the ones who years later are going to turn this world upside down. You're going to be the ones who are going to make a drastic difference in this world and for eternity and we have that same thing to offer college students, but they don't see it in the church often enough. And we've got to give them a purpose and a place to do that. We've got to teach them what that purpose is. They can fight all the little side issues that are going on in our world. 
and they can involve themselves in all the social justice product, but side projects that they want to. But the thing is, if they're not giving people living water, they're not changing their eternity, and they're not giving them the answer. We have a great purpose that we can show them. Our college students, you know, they, even you look beyond what's going on in the world around us. Our college kids never believe that they can have a good life, that their children could ever grow up in a home with their parents. But because of Jesus' purpose, they get to look at other families and like, man, that's amazing. And we try to give them a place to do that. We, he would talk about our cross chats, for instance. You know, with our cross chats, we, are, we have these evangelistic Bible studies. And I hate calling them Bible studies because it, it, it doesn't really encompass what cross chat is. I mean, the cross chats, you come in, you hang out, you eat. We do have a Bible discussion, but it, it is really revolving around what's going on in college students' lives and how they can take the Word of God and they can apply it to their lives for the purpose that God wants it to do, and then it can make a difference. And, it, and then the college students, they sit around and they share from their hearts and their lives about what God has done in their lives. And then they sit down afterwards and they're sharing with these unchurched college kids about what God has done in their life and what that looks like and how it takes place. We put on events, we do rubric keggers, and we do all kinds of crazy stuff, but it all is designed to let people know that there is a compelling cause that can change everything in their life. And I think of that passage when Jesus called them designated apostles to realize that he, he called them and designate, as he is calling them, he's saying, I'm sending you out. They don't even know what's going on. But salvation can be a selfish thing. Sanctification helps us to focus on others. So if one of the things that we try, in our studies that we use with people, usually, you know, 99% of the time, 95, I don't know what the percentages are, but you'll have a, a study with three people. And if this goes through our adult or high school, everything that's going on, you have the person who, whose friend, you'll have the person who's a non-believer, you'll have their friend from our ministry who invited them, who has gotten to know them, and then you'll have somebody that's studying, leading the study. And in the adult groups, I'll always say, hey, you, you may wonder why I'm here, but, but what's, what this is about is I'm here for really two purposes. I'm teaching you what it means to be a believer in Jesus, but I'm teaching your friend here, he's never done this, I'm teaching him how to teach you. And so hopefully, before very long, this table will spin and I'll be booted out and he'll be teaching somebody how to become a Christian as he teaches you how. Now that may not seem very significant, but I think it's what Jesus does in Mark 4 from the very beginning, that salvation is not allowed, that this calling isn't allowed to be selfish, that salvation, I'm going to be saved, and that's the end goal, that's the cause, that doesn't transform a lot, honestly. A selfish person can embrace that and remain the same. But when you're sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose, for a holy, holy cause, it changes everything. So, then finally, essential need number four. Uh, and by the way, just this just is a, a phrase I heard years ago. Uh, Rick Warren said this uh, the first time I went to Saddleback, and he said, where there is no vision, the Bible says, the people perish. Mm -hmm. But where there is no vision, the people go to a different parish today. That's especially true with college students. That if there is no vision, they're going to find a place that has one. And we have one that's, man, the stories, you know, I saw Joe Beam out here, and I saw him for a while, but Joe came over and he said, Robert, you guys, he goes, I go all over the world teaching. He goes, you, your church has the single most studies, stories of any church I've ever been to, just down the line. And they're incredible stories that happen because somebody embraced the cause. So number four, essential environment number four is a conducive environment. How much time do we have, by the way? I don't know, because it kind of shifted. <laughs> okay, John Maxwell says the law of environment is this, growth thrives in conducive surroundings. Ephesians 4.16 says, from him the whole body, 
joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, college students are looking for an environment. Let me give you three things. That number one is engaging. Man, this is meaningful. And they can walk in and they can see people that are black or white, young or old, that they can be engaged regardless of any predisposition they might have had. You know, the first question that somebody, when they walk into your assembly, in the college group, in a college activity, it's one thing, but they walk in, they, in the college group, they say, is there anybody here like me? In a campus ministry setting, yeah. But then they walk into the church, do they get to see something like that also? Who in here is like me? And then they get to watch, how do the people around those people that are like me engage with those people? So they need to have an engaging environment. They need to have an exciting environment that's there. And literally, they want an extreme environment. They're not, they're not at all excited about the color of the carpet or whether we're going to pass, pray, pass, pray with the Lord's Supper or we're going to just pray, pass, pray. They don't care about a lot of little things that can dominate you know, business meetings in churches. They want something that's on the edge. They want to have, I think this generation more than any other is very willing to acknowledge what the, uh, uh, those of us in the past aren't, and that is that we are incomplete without something, without a greater cause. And so it needs to be something that's extreme. And one of the cool things that I love is with, with, with the crossings, we have a vision of planting a church every three years. Now, with that, that means people, when we talk planting a church, 98% of the people that go out on our church plants were baptized, were reached and raised up within our group. But every three or four years, we're losing somebody to send out on a plant. One of our leaders is here. The first time he came to church, comes from a, a, a rough background, Tim and Christian Perdrier. Tim, by the time he was nine years old, was paying bills because it'd get shut off. He was hooking car batteries together when he was 12 to keep lights on his house. He was walking with his little sister, nine and seven, across town to do the laundry in their house. Horrible situations. And the first time he ever came to church, we were talking about church plants and going someplace. And Tim says, Christian, I goes, I can remember it's like it was yesterday. We were thinking, going home, we are like, who does he think he is? What idiot is going to, going to do that? Going to leave where they are comfortable and go out on the church plan? Well, he was the first idiot okay, <laughs> on our first team. And what engaged him was this idea of, no, this isn't just normal every Sunday morning stuff. These relationships have a greater purpose, and there's something good about that edginess that's there. I was over at my daughter's house, and there were about four or five junior hires. This has been like three or four years ago in the stairwell and I just happened to be listening and they were discussing when they thought they'd go out of a church plant. Would it be when they were in college or would they go out maybe when they were in high school somehow? <laughs> and where it might be. And I just listened for a, a little while, but do you know how unusual is it and how edgy is it for a 13 or a 12 year old to be talking about, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to go to Evansville. How do you even know where Evansville is? But that, that edginess excites them and it engaged them. So what's it take to meet the need of this guy, of this environment? You have to have a, 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 something that we don't do very well. They need a, a, a small group that's intimate, that is going to create an environment of wholesome warmth and growing. They need a campus ministry that then comes together, they can see something that's amazing and good as they hear the stories that are going on, and then they need a whole church. One of the cool things I think about the crossings, if you're familiar with campus ministries a lot of times, especially when I say campus ministries, college ministries, 
They will operate almost as independent federations within an existing body. And it robs both parts of that situation. It robs the adults of these incredible, incredible environments. You know, we got a couple of guys that, that have been there sitting there. <coughs> I couldn't tell if you were standing up or not. But uh, Nick is uh, not <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that group. But uh, Nick's not much taller. Nick is, yeah, you're not. But these two guys are, it's so cool because I love both these guys. Nick is one of the most friendly, engaging, kind guys I know. I always look forward to seeing him at church. Drew is a guy that, that, that I knew his mom, baptized his mom, and, and or there was there for a baptism, taught his dad. And I'm telling you, the situations that they that that that, that are there are not hope-filled. But these two guys, man, when I see them, and I see this young faith, and I see this warmth and this growing, it feeds me. But also they need that also. Because sometimes you ever wonder, guys, can you ever wonder, am I ever going to be able to make it? My life has always been filled with struggle. From the time I was very young, I thought something was wrong with me, that I was broken, and, and because of some things that happened in my childhood, that should have never happened to any kid. But man, I needed, I needed to be a look at somebody that was a little bit older than me and go, how are you doing? And when you have this environment like this, it's amazing that while the college students are the primary ones that we expect, quite frankly, high schoolers to go out, our adult population gives generously I mean, we're not a, we are probably would be classified as a more of a poor church. But when we send our church team plants out on any given Sunday, once every once less than every three years over the last uh, ten years, we've raised three hundred thousand dollars on a single Sunday. Wow. And it's understand high schoolers, man, they sell their bikes, they sell their stereos. Our college students will go without you know food for you know one two meals a day for six months to save money. But our adults also do also. They know that they're cared for. They live with them when the school's out. They care for them. So all together, this environment that's about, that, about not just the campus ministry today, but about my future tomorrow, there's a model that's there. Because honestly, in a lot of campus ministries, they're highly engaged and they move away and they disengage. They still attend, but they're disengaged. So those are the things that we see, just uh, you know, four things that are absolutely essential since the college is over 40 years of having a church that averages 26 years old. The things that I would say, even then, and probably now those things are even more crystallized and more high definition, you know, higher resolution. Okay. Questions? We're we got time for questions? Are we, we got five minutes? Okay. We got five minutes, for, uh, and we can go longer if you don't want to eat, okay? <laughs> Can you give the, the what it takes to meet the needs, the last one again? Uh, having this, it's a, that small group connection where they get to see it on a small scale. Small group. And then the college ministry where they get to see, they get to see it on a larger scale and they get to see a little more interaction. They get to see, you know, different ways that the church can work. And then the whole church together, being able to look and seeing older people and then younger people and then connecting those relationships. They need all of it. It's not enough for the college ministry or college students to exist on their own. They need that that connection with the whole entire church. It's always good when you doubt if you can make it to have somebody who you know is like you who did. What the Old Testament was about either to warn us about what they did wrong or to encourage us in what they did right. Look back at those guys and find hope. And I think that's what we are. We're hope bearers. You know, and again, I tell people all the time from my background, what are the chances that a kid that's sexually abused as a child who's in trouble everywhere he goes, who gets married at 17 years old, who has a child at 18 years old, 
that 45 years later is going to be a part of a church that's making a difference with their son who's a campus minister, with a daughter who's an who's a incredibly effective uh, youth leader. What's the chances of that? Well, it wasn't because of who I was. With all the tension, the deficit, the order of struggles that I had, I was like ADDD, you know what I mean? So I'm a hope giver. Not that I've got it all together. But if he can make it, <laughs> surely I can make you. I mean, that's what they're pointing me at. And it's true. But it's about a relationship with Christ that's deeper than service. It's about a member of that, being a part of this, this environment of an immediate family with that small group and an extended family of that congregation that allows you to grow and thrive and be secure. Do you all do uh, college campus outreach missions? And if you do, how does that look? When you say college campus outreach missions, what do you mean? Like, do you go to, uh, for example, I guess here would be like MTSU. Mm -hmm. Do you all go off to places like that and try to reach? That's what we do. That's, okay. So our college ministry, we have students who live on campus. We have a junior college and a university. We have students who live on campus, and a lot of our uh, our kind of community college kids, whenever school gets out and school empties out, they go to the college to meet more students. And they are very, very focused and intentional about meeting people. They go there, they invite them to our events. So, for instance, we'll throw a big event, like we'll do a rubric hanger, and we'll have 1,500 kids from the university show up because we do it right by the university. And before that event takes place, we sit down and we're like, hey, like, we're going to have fun tonight, but that's not why we're here. We're here because we're going to make connections and make relational connections with these people. So in, with the rubric here, you have students in and out. They come, they leave. They come, they leave. We're like, find two people, get to know them, create a relationship, whatever you can do. Get their contact info sometime in the next week. Try to reach out and have, some, have lunch with them, have dinner with them, go to coffee with them, whatever it might be. And if those people leave, then you find two more people. And, and the same kind of focus that you would have for that. We're like, when you're sitting in class, it's your responsibility to make sure the person next to you knows the gospel. Invite them to cross chat, you know, and they'll come to cross chat. And it's, we're very, very intentional yeah. and, and very that, focused on evangelism. That environment thing, during that time, the college students are free because the adults are there taking care of the cooking, the serving, and they don't they don't have to worry about anything other than reaching out. But that flip-flops, we just did a, a Halloween spectacular. We had, I'm guessing, between 1,500 and 2,000 people went through it. And the college students and the high schoolers do 90% of the, they'll dress up in the costumes. Every small group builds a set. It's a really cool thing, guys. I mean, it really is amazing. I've been, we've been done it for we've been doing it for a while, and I'm still blown away. But these guys are taking care of stuff there because it's going to be primarily adults and families that come to that. And they're saying, hey, we'll do the costumes, we'll do this. You just make sure you're trying to meet people and engage with people. And so there's that, that very wholesome kind of thing to where, you know, man, it helps us a bunch when it, because we do that. And I, and I like that goes back to the whole cause thing. Like when they go on campus, like we, when we talk to our college students, we're like, hey, like going to, to college, getting an education is your bonus. You're there to reach people for Jesus. That's why you're in school at this time. That's why you sit in that class at that moment. You get a, your education is a bonus to all that. That's not what your purpose is. That's not what your cause is. And they know that very clearly. We're done. Yeah. And, right. I, and we are very upfront about the idea that, and I believe this is absolute. you cannot be a disciple without having care and outreach to the people who are lost. You can be something, but you can't be a disciple. The only reason you know anything about Jesus is because he had care of you willing to come from heaven to do something for you. And you might be religious without being concerned for lost people if you're not Christ-like. Hey, 
thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that and maybe you found something you want to share with your student ministry leader. If you want to catch up with Robert and Carrie, chances are you're going to find them one of the upcoming gatherings for Renew.org. Either our Louisville One Day Regional coming up on April 30th, 2022, or October 4th, we have our national gathering. So save the date for that. That'll be in the Nashville area. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This is Jason on another Real Life Theology Podcast.